and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Jigger! Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, I don't know, it was something like 16, 18 months ago, at the very beginning of the pandemic, when we were still trying to figure out how to do this regularly by remote, that we had today's guest, and it was very exciting for me, because I've been a, a, I can't say lifelong fan, I didn't know that I'd heard of him when I was in, my, when I was in grade school. But well, as was, a grown-up, <laughs> I've been a great fan of our guest today, Matt Ridley, uh, former science correspondent for The Economist, but he's written a dozen wonderful books, including the last time I was on was for How Innovation Works. Um, and today he's on in part because he's the co-author of Viral, The Search for the Origin of COVID-19, which He's the co-author of with Alina Chan. Uh, Matt, welcome back to The Remnant. Jonah, thank you for having me back on. Um, I'm, you have a, you're one of the few guests who just simply has an open invitation. So whenever you want to come on, you just let me know and, you're, and you'll, you'll come on. Um, all right, so let's, just, let's, let's start with the book um, and, and the, the point of the book. Uh, you give much credence to what I assume they call it in the UK the same thing, the lab leak hypothesis. Um, uh, why don't you just sort of walk through the investigatory story about you know what your book is about? Yeah. So um, when the pandemic began, I assumed, like everybody, that it would be uh, a case of uh, an infected animal in the market infecting people uh, because the, the Chinese authorities said that the early cases were in a market. This sounded very like SARS, where the same thing happened in 2002-03. But as the months went by, and they failed to find infected animals in any of the markets, indeed in anywhere in China, they've tested 80,000 animals in China and not found an infected animal apart from ones that got infected from human beings. Um, uh, Then, and, and as the... That there failed to appear the pattern that appeared in SARS of early cases being, you know, food handlers, uh, market stall uh, owners, and things like that. Um, despite the fact that the technology is now much much better for tracing viruses and finding um, sequences and so on, um, it became apparent that we ought to take another hypothesis more seriously, and that hypothesis was that the laboratory with the greatest concentration of SARS-like coronavirus research in the world happens to be in the city of Wuhan. And it has the largest database of SARS-like coronaviruses. And it actually collected a very closely related virus from a long way away um, in 2013. Um, And we know also from previous studies that the reason that lab is in Wuhan is not because similar viruses exist in the wildlife in and around Wuhan. Um, These viruses have only been found over a thousand miles away uh, on the whole. Um, That is to say in southern Yunnan and uh, elsewhere in Southeast Asia. So all all the evidence, geographical and coincident, suggested that we ought at least to take seriously the hypothesis this might have been a laboratory leak. We know laboratory leaks happen. They happen at least four times with SARS itself and so on. Um, uh, And as the months went by, the circumstantial evidence pointing in that direction uh, grew stronger and the circumstantial evidence pointing to a natural spillover event on the whole grew weaker. And so my co-author, Alina Chan, has been one of the the leaders of this investigation. She's a a scientist herself. She came up with some early discoveries about the virus that were important in this respect. And she and I began to uh, investigate this and to uh, be as open-minded as we could to all the evidence. But we ended up uh, thinking that the laboratory leak hypothesis uh, is a very strong contender and we need to investigate it very thoroughly. So, um, I, I mean, I, I'm being somewhat devil's advocate like here, but 
when you say we need to investigate it very thoroughly, you know, what, uh, let me put it this way, put the geopolitics aside, put the fact that China will never admit under any circumstances that they're responsible for this, that they're on the hook for having done this. Um, and even if they did, that would be a really interesting sort of counterfactual political thing to roll out to what benefit is it like what are the chief reasons why the scientific community believes it must find out where it came from i mean what 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 would we do is it just oh now we'll be more precautious in labs or is there is there a medical argument for why we need to do it as well I think the main reason we need to find out is so that we prevent the next pandemic. Uh, I mean, uh, the the if this came about as a result of a, a trade in illegal wildlife, pangolins or civet cats or something like that, uh, then that gives us a very clear lesson that we need to be uh, cleaning up that uh, aspect of the world economy. If, on the other hand, it emerges that this came about as a result of an accident in a laboratory, maybe even one that wasn't detected, somebody got infected while handling a sample, for example, um, uh, then we need to know that so that we can take better precautions in laboratories in the future, so that we can review whether some of this research is too risky and shouldn't be done, particularly in large cities, and that kind of thing, um, and so that we can uh, deter bad actors, rogue states, bioterrorists, and others who are watching this episode and thinking, ooh, I could actually cause havoc in the world if I got hold of one of these viruses. And you know what? They never investigated it properly, so I'd probably never even get the blame. Mm -hmm. So um, what – so – let's say we actually can prove that that the the lab leak hypothesis is correct well first of all we should back up for a second you're not in any way making an argument you know a conspiratorial argument but that this was a deliberate thing or this was a bioweapon that was aimed at anybody right i mean at the beginning of the pandemic there were a lot of people who were saying oh this is a an attack by china and i always ask so why did they attack their own country first and then Italy if this was all aimed at America, right? So there's no, there's not, this is not a conspiratorial conspiracy theory kind of argument that you're making. You're making that this was a mistake somewhere, right? Yeah, early on, um, the media and quite a lot of the scientists said any suggestion that this came out of a laboratory is a conspiracy theory. Right. And they were conflating two things. One, the conspiracy theory, as you say, that this was a deliberate bioweapon deliberately unleashed on the world and they'd already vaccinated their own army or something like that. We're 99% sure that's absolute nonsense, uh, even as a remote possibility. that It makes no sense. You wouldn't do it where you're doing it. There's no evidence they were doing that, etc. But the possibility that an accident happened is by definition not a conspiracy. You know, an right. accident is an accident. <laughs> and and we think that what they were doing in this laboratory in Wuhan, which, as I say, is the leading laboratory for this kind of research in the world, um, is what they said it said on the tin, you know, is what they said they were doing, which was trying to predict the next pandemic, to try to identify viruses that might cause pandemics in wildlife, having already seen one very nearly do so in the case of SARS, and thereby be in a better position to detect the pandemic early and to prevent it and possibly even to solve it with a vaccine. They were explicit about saying what we'd love to do is produce a pan-coronavirus vaccine, a a vaccine that works against any coronavirus or at least any SARS-like coronavirus um, as a result of this research we're doing. Uh, And to do that, we need to grow some of these viruses in the laboratory. We need to go and get them from caves a long way away. We need to bring them to a laboratory. We do need to juice them up a bit so they can grow in human cells so we can test how dangerous they are in human beings. Uh, And we then need to develop vaccines against them, understand them, study them, etc. So it was all well-meaning research, but it's research that in hindsight, even whether this case happened this way or not, in hindsight it does not look terribly sensible to have been doing some of these experiments. 
Because either the work failed, it didn't predict a pandemic, it certainly didn't prevent it, or worse than that, it may have caused the very thing it was intended to prevent. Um, do you have a sense in all of this, in all of this about what the actual number? Like, there's there's an enormous amount of there are an enormous amount of numbers thrown around about total deaths from COVID, and I tend to believe America's numbers. You know, I'm sure we can have an argument. In, Reasonable people can have an argument about if someone with stage five cancer in their 80s gets COVID and it pushes them over the top, you know, how we count that kind of thing. That, that's fine. But, um, you know, m bodies are actually very easy things to count in an open society with, with a, a somewhat healthy bureaucracy. But do we have any real sense of how many people died in China? of this because it's it's always been very opaque to me and i don't believe any i don't believe china's economic numbers so why would i believe um their covid death numbers but do you have a ballpark guess about any of that i don't and i i'm not the right person to ask you that that I, I i i don't know exactly what's been happening since the pandemic began in in china except that we do know that there were very draconian lockdowns in Wuhan and in other cities uh, very early on, and they probably were strict enough to actually stop the spread of the virus in its tracks, at least temporarily. Yeah, but there was also um, that stuff about the satellite images of the crematoria going. You know, I mean, yeah. again, I don't know. That could be a total conspiracy theory. I just, uh, yeah, it, I, I don't know. But and and you remember, you know, just just a few weeks ago, there was a you know a case detected in an amusement park. And they basically locked people in the park for something like 36 hours while they <laughs> triaged them, etc. So, you know, th th this government would not be doing those kind of extremely draconian things if it wasn't experiencing quite serious death toll and other effects um, uh, when the virus did get into communities. Um, so uh, that, you know, could easily be it. it we, we don't know. Uh, how bad it got in China, um, but uh, it's quite possible that they haven't had as high a death toll as the West mm. because they take so much stricter measures. Right. Although even even if it was half our percentage rate, right, the absolute numbers would still be stratospheric because they just the population is so much larger. But um, so there's a lot of talk in the U.S. about how. Chinese funding is corrupting and inf heavily influencing scientific discourse and that the, the Chinese, um, and we saw this in the very beginning where, you know, it, it was amazing to me how quickly the meme went forward that any suggestion that calling this the China virus or the Wuhan virus, or anything, this was all racist, wearing masks for a little while, according to some liberal politicians, was, was racist, um, which I just, you know, the good old days um uh but what do you make of china's role in the international science community and how it is how it has behaved in particular amidst all of this i mean is it is it totally a story of villainy or are there things in the good column as well well i think china has made an enormous contribution to science in the last um 20 years in particular uh, it's investing heavily in it much of that investment consists of collaborating with Western uh, research institutions in order to um, uh, share information, but also ga gather information. Right. The, there have been cases, there was a particular case in Canada, you know, where uh, researchers at a university were uh, found to be deliberately capturing information and taking it back to China in an illegitimate way. So I think that there does need to be vigilance. There is also a fairly explicit uh, um, uh, wolf warrior diplomacy uh, thing going on whereby when China's interests are um, in question, Chinese people working in the West in universities and other institutions uh, do seem to be under some kind of pressure to, as it were, propagandize on behalf of the regime uh, and you know sort of stand up for it and accuse anyone of racism who criticizes it so you know there's a there's a there's a fairly aggressive policy there's also the problem that the world health organization is very much 
um, doing China's bidding in recent years. It, for example, at Xi Jinping's specific request, it recognized traditional Chinese medicine uh, as a form of um, uh, valid medicine. Well, some parts of that are, but a lot of it consists of things like, you know, eating pangolin scales or rhino horn will mm -hmm. affect your uh, libido or your health or some, something like that. So the, there's a lot of uh, nonsense there. And the World Health Organization uh, Director General, Dr. Tedros from Ethiopia, was very much Beijing's candidate. And Beijing went around Africa and other countries saying, vote for this guy and we'll make sure you get plenty of... Um, uh, money from for, for projects in your country, etc. You know, that kind of thing does happen. And there was an incident where um, early on in the pandemic, Taiwanese scientists contacted uh, the World Health Organization and said, we, we think something scary is happening in Wuhan. It looks like a human-to-human -human transmission of a coronavirus. Um, and they were told, you're from Taiwan, we don't talk to you, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the areas that you've also looked at is and you've written a great deal about is is global warming and we can talk a little bit about glasgow in a bit but um i'm just wondering you know do, are there parallels between you know uh, i believe global warming is real i'm i'm more in your camp about the the how to, how to talk about it and how to think about it in terms of it it's not an it's not an extinction level event it's not an existential crisis it's a problem that we should pay attention to and figure out how to deal with but one of the things that drives me crazy in the global warming debate is settled is the concept of settled science you know and and in general i think one of the great enemies of humankind is groupthink and we saw a lot of groupthink in um early days of the pandemic and, and now I think like your book is clearly a corrective to some of it and but there was a time when I thought it was just going to take hold and it would it would not you know it would be just simply verboten to talk about a lab leak hypothesis and it would be you know because it would be a Trumpian conspiracy theory or and all that kind of stuff um what what was in your view what are the main drivers of that early group think was it a natural sort of human fear response was it the corruption of politics or was it um or was it chinese you know funding and encouragement I and mean, what what made that that group think gel so quickly and say that this is a question that cannot be asked it's a really good question and i don't know that i have a very good answer to it uh, as you say it took hold quite fast it became very much a sort of politicized thing. Uh, and as you say, certain topics were taboo, they were heresies. We trace part of the origin of that to uh, two articles that were published, one in The Lancet and one in Nature Medicine uh, in the end of February and early March 2020. And they specifically said th there are um, ideas out there that this came out of a laboratory. That's nonsense. We're scientists. We know this is not to be the case. Um, and anyone who says it is the case uh, is um, making stuff up and shouldn't be listened to. And, they, you know, they were quite strongly worded articles. And they were signed in one case by four authors, in another case by 28 authors. And um, these had a big influence. Uh, and I, in, even I cited the Nature Medicine one. I said to colleagues who asked me, who came up to me and said, you know, is, could this be a laboratory leak? Uh, in March and April, I was saying, no, I've read a, a paper in Nature Medicine. I don't fully understand its argument, but it seems to be saying this is this can be clearly ruled out. So there was clearly an attempt to rule this out. Now, we now know how those two articles came to be written, thanks to freedom of information requests. And there was a call at the beginning of February on a Saturday afternoon, um, organized by the British chief scientist, uh, and uh, his American uh, opposite number, but with a number of virologists on the call. And they went into that call, according to Sir Jeremy Farrers, um, who's the head of the Wellcome Trust, his uh, memoir of this topic, several of them thinking, hang on, this virus looks like it might have been engineered. And because of the research we know that's going on, this possibility needs to be taken seriously. So Farrer cites 
his colleagues as having 78 to 80% certainty in one case, 60% in another, 50% in another, that this was a laboratory leak. After the call, they, they all sit down and they draft these two articles saying you can definitely rule this out. But attempts to find out what was said on the call that changed their minds so dramatically have hmm. been a failure because we've had freedom of information requests for the emails of these guys and we've got the results they've come forward and they are fully redacted you know every line is crossed out so you say hi at the top and best wishes at the bottom and that's all the information you get out of it <laughs> and that's not good enough we need to know what was going through these guys minds uh, because they went into that meeting very concerned that this might have been a laboratory leak and they came out and very effectively told the world to ignore that possibility. And that went on until May of 2021, when suddenly the dam burst. The evidence had been gradually accumulating that we couldn't ignore that possibility. The evidence for the la for the, uh, uh, the natural hypothesis had, had, if anything, grown weaker and weaker. And in uh, Science Magazine, my co-author, Alina Chan, was the orchestrator of this, or one of the orchestrators of this, um, a group of scientists wrote a letter saying, I'm sorry, but we really do actually need to take the lab leak seriously. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's a, it's something that needs to be considered properly. And some of the signatories of that letter were ones who had signed the previous letter in the Lancet the year before, which, by the way, had been orchestrated by Peter Dazak. We, we found this out again. He didn't. This wasn't clear um, uh, until... Uh, Freedom of Information requests. He had orchestrated that that first letter to the Lancet, and he uh, collaborates very closely with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. He's very friendly with them, uh, and he yet he said in that Lancet letter that he declared no competing interests. Eventually, hmm. the Lancet went back and and said, "Sorry, that was a mistake. He does have competing interests, but not for a, over a year afterwards." Um, so uh, the scientific community at the very least, um, uh, behaved very politically here. They decided that they wanted to uh, rule out this possibility before it got going. They had one good excuse for doing so, which was that there were some crackpot versions of laboratory hypotheses floating around. The bioweapon stuff, The, the there was a a paper published saying this is made of bits of H the HIV virus. That's complete nonsense. Um, but uh, so in in trying to rule those out, they decided they 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 we anything connected to a laboratory must be ruled out. And the arguments given in the Lancet paper and the Nature Biomedicine paper were frankly threadbare. I mean, they really were not persuasive arguments. You know, they were things like if it had been. In a, in a laboratory, then it would have been manipulated and we'd have seen the scars in its genome of that. Well, that's just not true. You don't leave scars when you do genomic manipulation of viruses these days, etc. So um, that there is a clear case here against the scientific establishment that it decided to create groupthink for reasons that were not good enough. Um. So earlier, earlier you said that the reason, which again, I, I, I totally agree with in principle, but just hear me out. Uh, you know, uh, you said the reason why we need to figure out what happened is so that we can prevent it from happening again. Now, again, that is utterly reasonable to me. That said, isn't it more the case, more likely the case that if we work on the assumption like generals fighting the last war, like, you know, um, that the next pandemic will come from a different direction, right? In that it's the odds of it being two lab leaks in a row seem to me actually kind of low. It's sort of like my father always used to say he liked to carry a bomb on a plane because the odds of two bombs being on the plane were just astronomically high. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, um, there's, there's something wrong with the logic there. But I yes, understand. Uh, yeah. But yeah, but, but you get my point. <laughs> um, yeah. And so like... Yeah. Uh, you know, shouldn't some of our pandemic preparedness not actually be concerned about where it's coming from and just assume we're going to get another pandemic because we are right. Um, and we just, and it could be that's, natural, it could be lab yeah. leak, but you know, whichever. 
I think that's right. In other words, you, uh, you what we need to do to prepare for the next pandemic is think harder about how we deal with uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions like lockdowns, how we get uh, vaccine preparedness ready sooner. Uh, we had, frankly, neglected vaccine development in recent years. It speeded up dramatically as a result of the pandemic, and I suspect these messenger RNA vaccines are going to be the answer in future to, to get us ready. So there's a lot of things we can do, whatever the cause. But if you look back to the SARS epidemic, which had an enormous impact on uh, East Asia, China, and um, other parts of, of Asia, in terms of the psychology, in terms of how to deal with this, in terms of you know how often you wear masks, all this kind of stuff. And that was the reason that this research got underway in a big way. Mm-hmm. So the, after SARS... Uh, just as you say, fighting the last war, they said, right, we've got to go into caves all over China and Southeast Asia, and we've got to sample bats, and we've got to find these SARS-like viruses and their cousins and work out which of them are dangerous and get ready to prevent them. Now, that was heavily funded by the US government as well as by the Chinese government and and others. So there was an enormous sort of um, gold rush uh, of work funded uh, in this way. And... um, Uh, you get people in the virology community saying, hang on, I'm not sure this is going to help. I'm not sure that identifying which of the 1.4 million viruses that could infect human beings out there in wildlife, that's an estimate, but it's, uh, you know, sort of the number found in mammals, um, is going to be dangerous next. I'm not sure that's going to work. So there's quite strong criticism of the guys doing this in the scientific literature uh, from prominent virologists saying, actually, what we ought to be doing is getting ready for pandemics in hospitals, in vaccines and things like that, rather than sampling wildlife. That's probably not going to be where the solution comes from. Well, they turned out to be right, mm-hmm. at the very least, and possibly prescient if, if, you know, if what they were saying was that this might actually cause the problem rather than... Uh, rather than than solve it um so we have already made the mistake of fighting the last war and um uh but you know we shouldn't do it again we shouldn't say right all the pandemic you know all future pandemics are probably going to come out of laboratories so let's uh, ignore um wildlife markets and uh you know the the trade in pangolins and other species etc no we need to be dealing with all of this by the way, there's an ecological connection here, which is is interesting. It's, we, we, we don't talk about it in the book, but I, I'm interested in it myself. And that is the link with deforestation. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, one of the papers that appeared last year in Nature, uh, signed by a number of senior virologists as well as other um, biologists, said this is an example of what happens if we allow deforestation. We, we cut down trees, that leaves the bats nowhere to go, they come into the cities, they infect people, and we get a virus, you know, either through the markets or something, and we get a pandemic. That was basically, you know, they said there is a clear link between deforestation and pandemic outbreaks. Well, actually, there isn't. Mm-hmm. There's no such clear link. And anyway, southern China is reforesting, not deforesting, and doing so at a faster rate than almost anywhere on the planet actually it's re-greening to a spectacular extent people have moved to the cities they're no, no longer trying to farm on these hillsides the forest is is, is rapidly uh, recovering some of these hillsides uh, the satellite evidence shows a significant increase in in green tree cover uh, on these hills in southern china um, so if anything that's good for the bats gives them more habitat gives them more insects etc etc so eventually a paper appeared saying, yeah, okay, well, actually, maybe it's because of reforestation that we're getting more bats. And so, you know, so, I mean, uh, you know, the, the, there's a lot of motivated reasoning going on in science, and one has to aim off for some of it. So where do you come down on the whole gain of function thing? Like, are, is it always evil, sometimes evil, neutral? And where do you come down on it? Well, the definition of what exactly is gain of function right. has become a highly politicized and difficult topic, and and it's it's slightly uh, you know not my um, 
it's not my fight. I don't have a dog in that fight because it's it's very much become a U.S. political issue, and I'm sitting outside the U.S., so I'm not here to to try and take sides in that. But um, to the extent that there was a vigorous gain of function debate around 2014-15, after some incidents um, that occurred around the same time, uh, some laboratory accidents that occurred around the same time as a proposal as a couple of experiments were done that made uh, influenza, a, a dangerous type of influenza, more airborne to see how easy it was for that virus to evolve into an airborne form. And that set off a debate. And quite a lot of scientists came down on one side and said, I'm sorry, this is stupid. We shouldn't be making viruses more infectious in human beings um, in order to find out how big a risk that is because that is a risk in itself. Mm. And there were other scientists saying, no, that's exactly what we should be doing so that we know what we're dealing with, we're prepared for it, and we're ready for it. And that was the gain-of-function debate, as I said, in 2014-15 particularly. There was then a moratorium on funding that kind of research. But the definition of what counted as as gain-of-function was very, uh, should we say, carefully drawn. So it didn't include animal viruses that, weren't capable of infecting human beings. These bat viruses, on the whole, are not capable of infecting human beings until they are suddenly, so you don't know whether they are or they aren't. And it didn't cover research that was already underway. I think there is no question now whether this virus came from a laboratory leak or not, that we all now know much more about what has been going on in virology laboratories with respect to animal viruses and um, whether or not they're capable of infecting human beings, and that a lot of those experiments have gone much too close Mm -hmm. to the line of creating the very problem they're designed to avert. Um, uh, And I think most scientists now accept that we need to have a, a thorough review of this and decide which um, uh, lines of experimentation in this area are acceptable and which are simply too risky. Uh, uh, you know, I personally am quite shocked by what's been going on. I, I've followed genomics very closely and written books about it, etc. but I hadn't particularly followed virology in recent years. Uh, and I was genuinely surprised to find that labs all around the world are doing experiments with animal viruses in which they use them to infect human cells and humanized mice, that is to say mice with human genes, Mm. which is training the virus on human receptors, let's face it. Um, And they're doing so with chimeric uh, genetic manipulation. In other words, swapping one gene from one virus to another to see what effect it has. And in some cases, they're getting 10, 100 thousand ten thousand times as high infectivity as a result and they're saying oh that's quite exciting (laughs) um i'm sorry but you know i'm a huge fan of biotechnology i think we need to be manipulating genes for the benefit of medicine and agriculture and other uses in society i think it's a wonderful technology gene editing in particular um but it'll get a bad name sure if it's used for this kind of stuff yeah, no, it just, I mean, it, it just it screams what could go wrong. I mean, it's like a bad movie. In fact, the, um, the all, it's funny, just going back to the lab leak thing for two seconds. Um, when the initial story broke and they would show the market where they claimed that the, th- that the virus came from, and then the cameras would wheel around and say, ironically, this market is right across the street from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. If you were writing a screenplay, right? I mean, this is Chekhov's gun on steroids. You would never put the Wuhan Institute of Virology near the scene where this thing apparently came about if you weren't planning by the third act to reveal it in fact came from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. I mean, I, I, I know circumstantial evidence isn't the best kind of evidence, but it is evidence, and you know, what is it? Uh, Thoreau says some forms of circumstantial evidence are quite strong as when you find a trout in the milk. Um, you know, when you find, <laughs> you know, find the Institute of Virology that studies this kind of thing and does this kind of thing right where they say, oh, it just coincidentally happened across the street. It's just right. very well, weird. Um, the 
John Stewart made this rather uh, oh, that's funny, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. funny remark that um, uh, you know, if, if if you had a chocolate disease break out in Hershey, Pennsylvania, you don't say, "Oh, that's just a coincidence." You know, <laughs> we've got a chocolate factory there. Um, uh, and you know, we quote the the famous line from Casablanca of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, she walks in a mine. <laughs> um, uh, but it's important to point out because there's a there's a myth out there that the reason the Wuhan Institute of Virology was in Wuhan uh, was because that's where this kind of virus is found. Mm-hmm. That's not true. They'd done analysis of bats in Wuhan and the surrounding Hubei province on an enormous scale. Tens of thousands of bats have been sampled, uh, and they have not found uh, SARS-like coronaviruses. They may have found one or two, but hardly any. These bats in that area are not carrying these kinds of viruses. They've found uh, some in eastern China. They've found some in Southeast Asia. They've found lots in Yunnan. And the the caves in Yunnan where they got their SARS-like viruses from and the mine shaft where they got the one that's closest related to SARS-CoV-2, they are nearly 2,000 kilometers from Wuhan. I mean, that's like going to Orlando to collect viruses and taking them back to New York to mm-hmm. study. You know, that's not next door. Mm-hmm. So there's, a, there's an important myth to be nailed there. And interestingly, in September, uh, French scientists from the Pasteur Institute and from uh, their Laotian colleagues from Laos uh, said they'd found a virus in uh, 2020 Uh, in a bat in Laos that was actually even more closely related to SARS-CoV-2, the cause of this pandemic, than the previous closest relative. But only just, but but slightly closer. Now, that was interesting because it begins to say, okay, maybe this didn't begin in China. Maybe it began in a neighboring country like Laos. But what's the connection between Laos and Wuhan? Well, it turns out that... The EcoHealth Alliance, which is this um, private foundation that collaborates with the Wuhan Institute of Virology on a lot of this research and is funded by the U.S. government, had been sampling bats all across Southeast Asia, including in Laos, but had decided not to analyze those viruses in the countries in which they found them because that would involve setting up new uh, grant uh, subcontractor arrangements, which are very complicated but to use a friendly laboratory that they knew could do this work to analyze these viruses. Now, where was that laboratory? The Wuhan Institute of Virology. So viruses were being sent by scientists to Wuhan from other countries in the region, we now know. Now, that was a surprise. We didn't know that until a few weeks ago. It's not in our book, Um, but it, it means that even finding a close relative in Laos still yeah. points the finger at a possibility that this was the, 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 the vector that, that brought the virus to Wuhan might well have been a scientist. So I am, I've been saying for since the beginning of this thing that whoever the John Doe n- number one technician at Wuhan Institute of Virology Presumably, this boiled down to one human being. I mean, I'm sure it was a chain of events, but there was one human being ultimately who brought it outside. And I've been saying this was the most expensive mistake in all of human history, right? It, or the most expensive accident. And yeah, I I don't know that to be true, but it seems to me that there's I can't think of another. And like you can talk about World War One, but that's not the same thing. That is a that is a series of policies. No one's policy was to release this thing. This was just a screw up of, of biblical proportions. And you just count how many, just forget the deaths. You just count, you know, the lost trillions of dollars in economic growth. I don't even see how it, uh, there's a close second to the, mo- this has to be the most expensive screw up in all of human history, right? I mean, or. I agree with that. I think that uh, this is the keenest mystery of our lifetime, as we put it in the book. You know, we need to find this out because this has done unbelievable damage. And as you say, it definitely started with one person getting infected. 
you know, the, we use the word origin, not origins. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's bound to be a, an index case. Well, not quite. It's bound to be a very small number of people because it's possible that you know there was a market stall where six people got infected on the same day, or a laboratory bench where three people got infected on the same day. And indeed, the U.S. intelligence community has let it be known that it is fairly confident that three laboratory workers from the Wuhan Institute of Virology were treated in hospital for a pneumonia-like disease in November 2019, uh, and that their symptoms included so-called ground glass opacities in the lungs, which are a characteristic feature of SARS-CoV-2, of COVID-19. So um, if that information is correct, and I have no way of independently verifying it, uh, then it does l- begin to look seriously possible that the first people to catch it uh, were laboratory workers. Now, if these were young people, say, um, who had to go to hospital because they had a pneumonia-like disease, that's pretty unusual, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, it suggests that something uh, was up. Um, now, they might not be the very first cases. There might be, be other cases. It could have been a scientist working in the field who was first infected. We've seen films and photographs of the scientists analysing bats in caves in Yunnan, and they're sometimes wearing full protective gear, and they're sometimes not doing so. Um, they sometimes take their masks off, their goggles off, their gloves off even, as they handle these bats in caves and outside the caves. It's often very hot, you know, and you, you it's not much fun wearing full protective gear. Um, so one of these scientists could have flown back to Wuhan on a plane, had a slight cold over the next few days, not felt very ill, um, uh, not necessarily gone to the lab, but might have gone to the market over the weekend, buy some food or something, and might have given it to somebody there. We know that the Huanan seafood market did act as a amplifier of the early cases. It was a super spreader event, but mm-hmm. we know that no animals were infected there as far as we can tell. Um, uh, so, uh, and there's this strange fact that one or two pangolins turned up, uh, smuggled pangolins from southern China, from Guangdong province, turned out to have a very similar virus in them, although not as many as as the impression was given. The pangolins were, were the fall guy in February uh, 2020 when the Chinese authorities announced four different studies had found infected pangolins. Turns out they were talking about the same pangolins. <laughs> really only two of them had these viruses, and they had a ton of other viruses in them. These were miserable, smuggled animals in terrible conditions, uh, who, which were not used to being, uh, you know, pangolins are very solitary creatures, they, they, they're not used to being with others, and they are very vulnerable to these kind of respiratory diseases. So they had picked up whatever was going around, mm-hmm. and they had picked up a similar virus. We don't know how, but we have again seen from the US intelligence community information that uh, some of these animals were taken to Wuhan for experiments. Um, we don't know why. Uh, it doesn't seem an obvious species to, to work on. Um, so, you know, we can't tell whether pangolins... And, and by the way, these sick pangolins, one of the sick pangolins which uh, was infected with a coronavirus was handled by a large number of people in an animal sanctuary, none of whom got sick. So... Uh, the pangolin story looks like a dead end Mm. or a curiosity or something that we can't quite fit in. But the idea that it's where the virus came from in the human pandemic is wrong because the pangolin virus is is only uh, 95% the same as as the human one. It's not nearly close enough to be the the actual source. So um, uh, I've meandered off course from your question. No, it's fine. It's it's totally fine. (laughs) Meandering is part of the point of this podcast, so that's okay. But so let's meander over in the time we have left a little bit, if you don't mind, um, to Glasgow and the global warming stuff. I know you're, you have had other things on your plate these days, but you're, you've always been, what, what is your, um, you're a, you're a lukewarmist. Was that the, the, yeah, I call myself a lukewarmer. Um, uh, that is to say somebody who thinks climate change is real, thinks the evidence suggests that climate change is real, that man-made climate change is real, that it's happening, that it's an issue, 
but that there is a huge amount of exaggeration going on by activists and that there are other environmental problems that frankly are not getting the attention they deserve because of the attention given to climate change and that some of the measures we're taking to combat climate change are um, uh, doing more harm than good. Um, uh, but as you say, I've actually, I mean, I've, I've covered that topic on and off for 35 years mm-hmm. since I was science editor of The Economist in the 1980s when it first arose, uh, and I've gradually become less alarmed, not more, about climate. That makes me extremely unfashionable, nay, heretical, and I get called all sorts of things like a denier, which is frankly offensive, you know, because mm-hmm. it's trying to um, uh, trying to make me sound like a Holocaust denier, which is a really... Uh, unacceptable form of discourse in my view um uh but you know the last few years i've not been focusing on that topic uh, i don't think i i think personally a pandemic that kills millions um and the cause of it is too important a cause for me to spend time on anything else so um i've been out of the uk while the glasgow conference is going on i've not followed it I can't tell you very much, but boy, is there a lot of hot air being produced in Glasgow. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, we're pretty much on the exact same page. We might, uh, if if we ranked all of the things that we're concerned about on zero to 10, we might come up with slightly different numbers. But directionally, I'm I'm with you. One of my uh, biggest complaints um, is, what what was Rio? Is it 92? Is it 94? The, The, you know, the... Yeah, Rio was 92. 92. Yeah, that, and and, and yeah. at Rio, there were two co-equal declarations. One was about fighting climate change, and one was about protecting biodiversity. And yeah. um, now I don't have a lot of faith in global bureaucratic institutions to be able to protect biodiversity, but I actually care a lot about biodiversity. And exactly, I'm a big right. fan of charismatic megafauna. I want to protect elephants and cool animals and whales and these kinds of things. And I think deforestation isn't the problem that people think it is, but in certain re- regions, it really yeah, is a that's big right. problem. that's it's, right. It's completely right. Exactly. No, it's a big issue in the Amazon, in Indonesia, and other areas still. Um, uh, and and the, the, an example of a problem that we're neglecting is invasive alien species. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the cause of extinction, it's nearly always an invasive alien species, usually on an island. Right. That um, can outcompete uh, the domestic... Yeah, species, yeah, yeah, exactly. So the Galapagos, Hawaii, you know, the 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 um, uh, the, the the sun. Uh, what are they called? The, the, the beautiful birds with curved beaks in in Hawaii. Um, uh, um, anyway, I know what you're uh, talking they, about. Yeah. Some some of a huge number of them have gone extinct. I was lucky enough to go and look for some on Maui when I was there once. Um, and it's avian malaria brought by Japanese white eyes, which were introduced into the island which are another kind of bird, mm-hmm. um, some decades ago. And if you know, the birds only survive above the area where mosquitoes live. And the mosquitoes are alien, the, the other birds are alien. This is a very, very common phenomenon. Wherever I go in the world, and I, you know, I'm a very keen bird watcher, um, including my own home, the reason animals are dying out when they are is nearly always because of invasive species. So in my, you know, my hometown, the gray squirrel from America is driving out the native red squirrel. Um, the island of South Georgia in the Antarctic, which I was lucky enough to visit a few years ago, rats caused a huge problem. They've now been eradicated, an incredibly expensive but unbelievably ambitious and successful program. Um, uh, These are the, you know, if you want to save species, we need to be thinking really hard about how to control uh, invasive alien species because the problem's still getting worse. Um, And that to me, is a much greater threat to biodiversity than climate change. Um, uh, and as I say, deforestation reverses in wealthy countries. Most right. you know, rich countries are seeing increases in forest cover. I have a, a line which I use just to get people thinking about this, which is I say, tell me why lions are decreasing in number, uh, wolves are increasing in number, and tigers are roughly holding their own now. And the answer is very simple. Lions live in poor countries, wolves live in rich countries, and tigers live in middle-income countries. Mm. Uh, And it turns out that as a country gets richer, people move into cities, buy their food rather than hunt their food, um, 
heat the, the uh, cook their food over um, electric or gas rather than chopping down trees, etc. They come into less competition with wildlife and they do less damage to it. Um, they can and, also afford to protect it, right? Because then all of a sudden, and they can afford to care about it too. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, um, uh, so that's why there's this uh, uh, very clear relationship between the wealth of a country and whether or not it's deforesting. Um, uh, Bangladesh, for example, is a country that is now reforesting quite significantly, despite having an enormously high population. Um, uh, because it's reached a level of wealth at which people plant trees rather than cut them down on the whole. Um, so it's very important that we get Africa in particular richer mm-hmm. so that it can protect its natural environment and its biodiversity better. Um, uh, it's very important we tackle invasive species. Uh, in the ocean, we need to tackle overfishing, which is a huge cause of problems. Um, we need to deal with, you know, silt runoff that affects coral reefs, etc. All of these are, to me, much bigger issues than climate change. And yet we're told that it's the big issue and everything else must take second place. Yeah, I mean, the, there's so much stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan of artificial reefs um, and the data on it. Like, there were some papers last time I looked. Our mutual friend, Ron Bailey, is the guy who turned me on to a lot of this stuff. And you know, collapsed oil derricks in the Gulf of Mexico, for example, generate 10 times the fish population uh, than, than existed there before in that area beforehand. It's not, and it's now conclusively shown that it's not just attracting existing fish. It's that the, these have become habitat for people to, for people, for fish and other, you know, wildlife to, to prosper in. And, I've I've wanted to see like just a massive campaign to build artificial reefs, you know, around the around the oceans, particularly around poor countries, to r- fix their fisheries. And you can come up with rules about. It. I mean, there's all sorts of things I think you could be proactive about. Maybe some ideas are more crackpot than others. I kind of like some of the seeding of the ocean with that iron. What is it? Iron sulfide to create plankton growth. I think that stuff is really cool. Um, yeah, I agree. And and yet the environmentalists have opposed it heavily. Although, actually, I just came across a proposal which I'd never heard of before just this week, which is to pipe light down into the ocean and hmm. stimulate. Because um, apparently if you go down a couple hundred meters in these uh, you know, very ocean desert areas where there's very little growth, there is enough nutrient down there, but there's not enough light for stuff to grow. And so if you pipe light down, then you get the growth of plankton and so on, Hmm. um, some of which will then uh, sink to the bottom uh, and take the carbon with it. So this might be a significant way of getting sucking carbon out of the air. Uh, I think that that sounds really ingenious. Um, And cheap, right? I'm not going to, well, is it cheap really to put, you know, 100-meter fiber optic cables I don't know. dangling in the ocean. I'm not going to put all my savings into it right now, <laughs> but, but, um, <laughs> but watch this space. But so I, uh, on, on the global warming stuff in general, we don't have to get to the specifics of, of Glasgow. I agree with you. There's an enormous amount of hyperbole. The, when It drives me crazy. Basically, every Democratic candidate in 2020 said to either it was a, that global warming is an extinction-level event or an existential level crisis which neither which are basically synonymous terms and both are nonsense and that's 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 not supported by the intergovernmental panel on climate change right and, and, and it drives going, me crazy because they say you have the to follow scientific. the science because science tells yeah. us this is an extinction level event and these things are in exactly. contradiction with each other and but actually to link it back to the pandemic the world health organization put out a statement in 2015 which said the greatest threat to human health in the 21st century is climate change mm-hmm. well that's not its day job and this suggests an organization that wasn't doing its day job, that right. wasn't looking at infectious diseases and pandemic threats because it wanted to talk, it wanted to join the bandwagon and talk about climate change. So these things are not without cost. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, you've seen the World Health Organization get back, you know, relieved to get back onto talking about climate change in, in recent months so they can stop talking about the pandemic. I, you know, I just think that, that priority wise, We've gone a little mad on on, on this topic in, in recent years, but you know this this is not in my book. It's probably going to get me into trouble because people say, "Ah, well, if he's not sound on climate, how do we know he's sound on pandemics?" Well, um, frankly, uh, I try and approach every topic 
afresh with an open mind. Yeah, I, I wasn't no, trying to get you in trouble with, and I, I don't think at least no, I know you weren't. Our, our but, listeners, uh, you'll be okay. Um, <laughs> but just, just you know, the last thing on the climate thing, maybe it's just because I've been writing about it recently. But if you actually do, in fact, believe, and I do think that there are sincere people who sincerely believe it is an extinction level event that there really is this, you know, existential crisis, and then you say, okay, why can't we have nuclear power? And they're like, well, because nuclear power is terrible. And is it, if you took, if you actually believed it was that level of a threat, you would not rule out in advance solutions exactly right. to the problem. And yeah. I can never tell whether this is just cognitive dissonance and people just don't understand how wrong they are, um, or if it's proof that they don't actually really believe it's an existential existential threat, um, because you're actually you say, okay, well, what are you willing to do about it? And if what you're willing to do about it doesn't include nuclear power, even conceptually, then I, it's very hard for me to take you seriously when you say it's an existential threat. Um, yeah. Well, it's worth just doing a thought experiment. In the next 10 years, I think it's easily possible that we'll get commercial fusion reactors on the grid. Um, the technology is reaching a point where, and there's huge private investment going into it now as well as public, where fusion as opposed to nuclear fission uh, is going to uh, contribute. And basically, a cup full of water can fuel a city for, you know, years uh, with fusion. You know, the, the 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 inputs are tiny. The output in terms of energy could be enormous. Um, it's not trivially easy to arrange it, but, uh, it, it, you know, suppose we got to a situation towards the end of my lifetime where you could build relatively cheap fusion reactors, uh, and their risks are tiny. They can't melt down. They produce very little uh, uh, radioactive waste um, uh, suppose we got to a situation where um, you could build these things in every town in the country for a relatively small amount of money and basically you'd have unlimited energy would the environmental movement say phew problem solved um, thank goodness or would they say oh my god this is even worse right. it means that people are going to uh, be able to uh, use their cars you know we're going to make the fuel from I don't know water or something, it means people are going to you know water the desert because you're going to make uh, desalinated water whenever you want. Um, you know uh, the, the who was it? I think it was Amory Lovins who said giving abundant energy to human beings is like giving a loaded gun to a child. Um, I don't agree. I think if we can crack our energy problem, we can remove our dependence on nature. We can stop messing up the landscape with. Right wind power and solar power and, and so on. We can grow all our food indoors with LED lights and then we can turn the rest into a nature reserve and I can go bird watching to, for the rest of my life. Um, but I know the environmental movement wants a hair shirt. It wants mm -hmm. austerity. It wants people to be suffering for some reason. And I just don't understand that mentality. Um, uh, they'd much rather we rode back on consumerism than that we solved the problem. And the, the, the objection to nuclear power, um, which is still too expensive, by the way, it's not sort of an immediate solution to the sure. problem, but that, that's because we've made it too expensive. You know, we, we need to, to work out how to change that, and it can be done. But uh, the objection to it seems to be an objection to coming up with solutions to the problem. Mm -hmm. We'd rather have the problem. The right. problem is very lucrative for environmentalists. You know, they, they raise money. You know, ten, Jeff Bezos gives them $10 billion. Um What's not to like about wallowing in the problem? So the only thing I'd say in response to that, I agree with you, nuclear is too expensive for all sorts of reasons we probably agree on. But saying nuclear is too expensive is something that you're allowed to do and that I'm allowed to do. But if you've been talking about the Green New Deal and spending 10, 20, 30 trillion dollars on fighting climate change and then to wheel around on me and say, oh, no, but nuclear is too expensive. You just don't get to make that argument because you've up until this moment, you've been Price is no object on everything, um, except oh, but now let me put on my green eye shade and talk to you about nuclear power. It just it's yeah. it's, it's not fair. Yeah, I, I I agree with that, and and there's a lot of myth about the cost of wind power coming down. That just ain't 
happening. You know, look at the capital expenditures and operating expenditures of wind power companies. Uh, it's not coming down nearly as steeply as they've been claiming. Uh, the cost of integrating it into the grid, the cost of intermittency, all those kind of things. It, it's a vastly expensive technology, very old technology, huge amount of mining required to support it, immense amounts of land needed, kills eagles. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I'm sorry, I just don't accept that that is the answer to our problem. Um, all right. So, uh, just quickly back on the pandemic stuff for two seconds. Um, so you saw Pfizer has this new medical treatment, uh, that is 89% effective in, uh, reducing the risk of, of hospitalization or death. And I've been, I've been trying studiously for almost two years now to take the, 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 the middle course on all of these things. I am not I, I, I'm opposed to maskophilia and maskophobia. Um, yep. They're, they're just too. they're just a tool, and you shouldn't endow them with all sorts of profound cultural or political symbolism. Um, I thought the lockdowns in the beginning, partly because of our limited knowledge, were justified, but they lost their just they lost their their rationale a long, long time ago. Yeah, but, I agree with I agree with you on both those points. Actually, it's exactly the line I took. I was for the first lockdown. I was, I was much more skeptical about the second and third. But so now they're, you know, the original argument for the lockdowns for a lot of these things was uh, keep the medical system from being overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. We are now at a point where, at least in the U.S., I think it's fifty six percent of the U.S. is fully vaccinated. Um, much higher number partially vaccinated. A lot of people have had the disease. And now, if we actually have something that, if you take it within three days of getting infected, you're effectively just going to have a cold. It seems to me, it's over, or it should be over. And that, 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 and if you refuse to get vaccinated at this point, that's really sort of on you. And I think yeah, the, I agree with you. I the media you. has been reporting I, I, breakthrough cases as if there are these tragedies. When in reality, if you've been vaccinated, a breakthrough case is a cold you know, or a bad flu for n- yeah. nine out of ten people. So, I mean, shouldn't we just, like, have a party and say it's over? Well, I think if you look at the numbers now, the case fatality rate, you know, your chances of dying of COVID population-wide, if you've been vaccinated, is way down. Uh, it's roughly equivalent to flu or a, or a bad cold. Uh, you know, it's less than 0.1% of people are, are dying who've been vaccinated. Um if that gets even lower with uh, these new antivirals, and yes, it's very exciting that these uh, protease inhibitor drugs are being repurposed uh, from HIV research in at least one case to, to be functional against this virus. Uh, and I thought that would happen quicker. I actually said at the beginning of the pandemic, I think antivirals might come to our rescue before vaccines. I was wrong about that, but you know, I'm wrong about a lot of things. Um, uh, and uh, if if that's the case, I really don't see the need to to have major non pharmaceutical interventions going on uh, of the kind that, that the bureaucracy is clearly reluctant to give up. Um, and uh, I'm sorry, but we need to rediscover um, our freedom. And as you say, if you don't want to take the vaccine, then you're increasing your risk. I think it's a really stupid decision on your part. But uh, you shouldn't, therefore, be allowed to keep the rest of us under some kind of uh, uh, lock and key uh, or forced to wear masks, which are immensely inconvenient things. There's no good evidence they work particularly well, if, if at all. I do wear them. They might work. They signal that I'm being careful. Um, uh, but um, the, the, the way we're going to get out of this is by brilliant scientific research. The vaccine work was an incredible piece of work. You know, this work that had been going on for years to try and make messenger RNA into a into a, a medical technology. Um, a lot of failure along the way, but finally success. Um, the work on uh, protease inhibitors for HIV and now being repurposed, etc. This is brilliant scientific research. It's what's going to solve the problem. We should be immensely grateful to science. I'm very, very pro-science. Which is why it's all the more horrifying that I have to take seriously the possibility that some scientists have been doing experiments on viruses that might have caused this pandemic or might cause another one, mm-hmm. and that's why I think it's a really it, it's it's a really troubling issue for me. I mean, I you know some of the people who are most fervently hoping it's a 
lab leak and looking for it are people who are you know professional anti-gmo campaigners well you know i won't break bread with such people um but uh that's why i'm you know i want the scientific community itself which does such wonderful work to come in and say good point let's look at this let's make sure it's 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 not a problem all right on that note uh matthew ridley uh one of easily one of my favorite writers in the uh english language and i don't have any favorite writers who aren't in the english language uh thank you so much for coming back on goldberg one of my favorite writers in the english language it's a real honor to be on your show we will get you the best doctors but thank you for saying that um the, (laughs) the book is viral the search for the origin not origins the search for the origin of covid19 uh written by uh alina chan and matthew ridley uh, you can get it wherever you get books. Uh, again, Matt, thanks for being on. Great to be on. All right. So Matt Ridley has uh, left the studio, uh, as it were. And um, he did chastise me after we stopped recording that he is Matt. His son is Matthew, but I should call him Matt. So I will do that in the future. Um, and uh, I highly recommend this book, all his books. He, again, totally serious. He's one of my favorite writers. And, um, and just a super charming, decent dude. Um, and I hope I didn't get him in trouble with possible book buyers because he voiced skepticism about climate change, but, um, that's all about all I got. I was traveling all this week. Uh, thanks to everybody for the, all the very kind notes and stuff. I do feel a lot, lot, lot better. Um, I had a great time, uh, in Dallas, which since this is going to air next week, I can tell you, maybe I'll talk more about in the solo remnant on Friday, but this will be in the future. So I'll have already done it. So it's all very complicated and strange. And, um, other than that, um, that's all I got. So thanks to Matt Ridley. Uh, and, um, thank you for listening. Thank you to David French for subbing for me. And, um, I'll see you guys next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.